Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Waterfowlers. Welcome to another edition of the North American Waterfowler Podcast. My name is Elliot, and you are listening to episode number 28. I have just been so pleased with the last few episodes with Titus and Joel. It's really been on a roll. I've really enjoyed talking to those guys, and I love having guests coming on. And I've got a lot more guests lined up for the future, so be ready for that. Today, I decided I was just going to do this one solo. Actually, it is Thursday night, 1020 Central, and I was sitting on the couch going through some notes and organizing some things for the podcast, and I came across this question, This, and I decided I was going to use it for comment of the week, and I'm going to be talking about that in just a moment, but the comment that I read really got me thinking. And as I got to contemplating this comment on one of my videos, I just really started thinking about it. And it led me into thinking about hunts that I have gone on that were very, very memorable and very special to me for whatever reason. And I just said, you know what? I want to talk about these hunts. I want to go in and record a podcast. I want to talk about these hunts. So tonight I am going to share with you three hunts from my past before I started filming, before I had my YouTube channel. Um, One of these actually was from 2013 and I did film a significant portion of it because I had a camera at the time. And, and this one, actually, if you go back into season one, I did post this at some point. It's, it's a low quality film. No kill shots on video, 
but a very, very special video to me and a very special hunt. So I'm going to talk about those three hunts. I'm going to talk about the comment of the week, and I'm going to talk about those three hunts, and I'm hoping that I can do them justice um, in my explanation of these hunts to you. But a quick update, because I know I like to talk about Georgie and my progress with her, and tomorrow is, um, or in two days, is Saturday the 13th. And I was scheduled to go out to Nebraska for Georgie's second finished hunt test weekend, her first full finished hunt test weekend. I was so excited. She's been making progress. I've been getting some personal coaching from Chris Jobman on my secondary podcast, the Flatlander Kennels podcast with Chris Jobman. If you haven't heard it, make sure and check it out. It's awesome. And I just really felt like we were ready to go and get two more finished passes, which would leave us with only one more left to get her title and I was out training and she just sliced up her foot. I, I was, we were working on, in fact, I, if you follow me on Instagram at freelance duck hunting, I, I did a little video about her running channel blinds. And on that training session, I noticed her limping just for a moment. Uh, like it, I just barely caught one little limp and I remember it registered me hmm, looked like she limped, but that, but she wasn't limping after that. Um, the rest of training, no limp, didn't even think about it. I got her home and from the truck coming to the house, I know she was limping and I looked down and she was bleeding pretty bad right see above or below, below her like little elbow on her back foot. And she had a significant gash. She had to get six stitches. And so I scratched her from the event. It was last Wednesday. So she would have, it would have nine days away from the event. And I'm like, man, is she going to heal? Is she not going to heal? And honestly, she's healed up fantastic. She could probably do it, but I just wanted to scratch her. So really bummed about that. It always seems like that for whatever reason, at the HRC hunt tests that are near me, so many times there's some reason why I can't make it to that. Two years in a row, I've got kids graduating on the local um, HRC hunt test club event. And which obviously I'm going to go to the graduations, but I had a family emergency my first year. It just seems like something happens all the time that keep me from these events. And I have scheduled for one on June 16th and Chris Jobman is having a seminar at Flatlander Kennels and he really wants me to come out there and run some video and I want to go out there. And so I can't, I was going up to a different Nebraska event on that weekend. So I can't go on that. So it's like, whatever, I'm just tabling it for a while. Um, I do have an HRC contest on one day on Sunday, the 21st that she's in. So if she gets that, she'll be halfway to her finished, her finished um, <clears throat> title, which she'll be HRCH hunting retriever champion. She'll be halfway to her hunter retrieving champion title. And from there, I've got another event in July. So anyway, that is the update on what I've been going on. Before we get to the comment of the week, I do want to, I do want to remind you guys, if you want to see my videos, there's of all my hunts over the last eight years, you can find them on YouTube, which is freelance duck hunting, or you can find them on Roku, Android TV, and Fire TV. We just added Android TV and Fire TV. If you just look up duck hunting on those outlets, you can find my videos. The cool thing about that is they just kind of pop up in a random order. So you don't know what you're getting. Um, all most of my hunts are over there. So make sure and check those out. Now let's go ahead and jump into the comment of the week. So this week's comment of the week 
um, came from a video that from this last year that I was looking through. And this video was a river hunt. I don't know if you've seen it. One of my favorite videos of the year. And anytime I get these kind of comments, I know the video is doing well. Because if the video gets up over like 100,000 views, it will start pushing it out to people that aren't typically waterfowl hunters. And so you start getting a lot of anti-hunting comments. And any, any waterfowl video that you start getting anti-hunting comments, you know it's doing well. You know it's doing well. So this comment was made by the name Peace, P-E-A-C-E. And it says, why do you hunt these magnificent animals? When I read that, I, it made me think, like, why do I hunt these magnificent animals? I love birds, waterfowl specifically, but I love songbirds. I love the American kestrel. I am absolutely in awe and fascinated by birds. Every time if I'm driving and I see a bird, I can promise you that I'm trying to identify it as quickly as I can. And whether it's every bird has some little key feature that you can see even in flight as it's flying by you. And you can identify. Anyway, I, I'm, I'm, they are magnificent animals, especially ducks are magnificent animals. I grew up upland game hunting, pheasants, quail prairie chickens and even at that age pheasants to me because they were introduced and they're not a native bird loses their luster a little bit with me quail are native to kansas so i like them a little bit better but what really fascinated me was prairie chickens there's something about a prairie chicken that's undescribable that you can feel the history of kansas in this bird when you're around it, when you see it, you can, you can feel the history in this bird. You can, you can feel that it's been around for, for centuries. There's a wildness to it. And waterfowl is, is like that, but even more. The thought of everything that ducks see, all the states they cross to, all the miles they travel, they are journeymen. They're nomads. There's something about that wild wildness of waterfowl. Something about, about them that sets them apart from everything else. Not to mention the feather patterns. I don't know if you've ever looked at, at a duck's feather pattern, but if you get a, start looking at a wood duck specifically, and you get, you get a um, distinct, coloration on on the bird it's not just one feather it's like many feathers coming together you might have one little fleck of white on one little feather that add, that contributes to an entire pattern of color they're just magnificent so why do i hunt them there is something down deep in us north american waterfowlers which if you're listening to this, I'm sure you can relate. There is something that goes deep, deep down to the pits of our soul that craves 
the adventure that craves the hunt that craves the thrill of sometimes living on the edge of danger. It's when you're as eaten up with waterfowl hunting. And again, I know if you're listening to this in May, this pertains to you. It's an itch that you just have to scratch. It's something that has been, been passed down to us that the majority of men specifically have lost that hunter instinct. I think of it like a cat. If a cat is laying in a room, a cat is fully fed and it sees a mouse run across the room. There's something in that cat that has to go after that mouse and kill that mouse. And there, there's something like that that's in us. That those of us that got that strain from our ancestors. I mean, we have been hunter-gatherers the vast majority of human existence. It's only been until recent, very, very recent, that men weren't, most men weren't hunters. That's what, that's what we are. And I, and there's just something deep down inside of us, North American waterfowlers that have to do it, that have to do it. It's not just a, Hey, what do you want to do today? Yeah, let's go for a walk. I guess it's, it's something that calls you. It's something that pulls on your heart, something that a thirst you just have to quench. We know our practices are not depleting the population of these birds. And yes, they're delicious and we consume them for food. And I want to have them for food and I want to eat them. I enjoy eating them. But that's just part of it. We are, we are so removed from, from adventure. We are so removed from adventure especially in this age where everything's just so digital and we're all on our phones and, and most adult men play a lot of video games, watch movies and we're thrill seekers. We're adventure seekers. We're hunters. And that's why we hunt these magnificent animals. It, it's multifaceted and, and goes to the depths of who we are. So I'm going to take a little break here real quick and then we are going to come right back and I'm going to share with you three of my most memorable hunts that when I think of why do I hunt these magnificent animals, these three days, these three adventures, these three times in which I gathered meat for my family. These are the reasons why that we hunt these magnificent animals. I love this song. Check it out. It is The Arrow by Josh Garrels. I'm looking 
Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com All right, welcome back. I am about to share three hunts that when I talk to people about hunts of the past, these three, there's so many, but these three stick out. And like I said earlier, these are from before I was filming. I did film one of them, but I didn't have a YouTube channel. These were, so my memories on these hunts are not as strong as what they is what I wish that they were. And ultimately this is why I film my hunts. I film my hunts for my own self, my own memory. And if people want to watch it, that's fantastic, but they're for me and they're for me to remember. So the first one, this hunt was in November 13th of 2010. And in 2007, I had, let me double check and make sure that date is right. 2000 and yeah, 2007. I moved and I moved in range of a particular complex and I had only hunted it one time before. And so this is a big complex, lots of marches, lots of areas. And so I was on this learning curve to really, really learn this place. Now in 2007, 2008, 2009, if Onyx was around, I didn't know about it. I was, in fact, at that time, I don't believe, now I know some people were scouting with Google Images, but I felt like that not that many people were using satellite imagery for scouting is how I felt. And I know that I was very, very hush-hush about it. In fact, even when I started on the Duck Gun podcast, that was probably five years ago, um, on X, I wasn't that popular and I really tried not to talk about using satellite images to scout and i was scouring google earth it was um, before i married my current wife um it was just myself and my five six-year-old son living together in a little house in the country and i cannot tell you the amount of time that i spent on satellite imagery of this one complex and i was you could actually set pins on on I'm sure you probably still can, but um, you could set pins on, on Google Earth. Now, it wasn't earth.google.com. At that time, you actually had to download it. And so it took me probably 2007, 2008. This was year number four of hunting this complex. And I go through my notes, and this was before Freelance Sunstats. I was still keeping a spreadsheet, a very, very detailed spreadsheet. Um, that does everything that freelance hunt stats does. It was just not near as user friendly and, and 
um, difficult to use. And I've since entered all these numbers into hunt stats, but I had to go back into my old spreadsheet, which I still have to, to review the details of this hunt. But I started, um, I found an area on this complex that I didn't have any idea was there. The department of wildlife and parks maps did not even show them as marshes. They had no name. Now, now since then they've, they have been named, they call them a name. I don't use those names because I had already, I named these places before the state did. So I stick to the name that I always thought of it as that I called it, but I, I found this place. I had seen it. I'd, I'd seen it and I'd, I had pinned it on Google. And in August, I took my boy out there. Nevin and I went out there and I wasn't even sure how often this spot had water. I wasn't sure if the ducks would use it but it was just on my list to look at and we got in there and I'll talk about how you get in there. Cause it was a chore to get into this place without a big boat. And my dad didn't love ever at the time. So I didn't, I didn't have access to his boat with the surface drive. And we, we got into this marsh and it was loaded with water. And I remember the elation that I felt, finding this place. It was a five mile boat ride to get to this place. And you weren't walking to it. You still are not walking to it. Although it hasn't had water for a long time. I haven't hunted it in a long time. Well, I have actually had a little bit of water. I I actually did hunt it. Um, Anyway. And so as the season approached, 2010 was the first time I'd ever hunted this marsh. My dad and I hunted on the opener. We went in with his boat, um, shot our limit. I hunted it another time, did okay. So this hunt, like I said, was November 13th, 2010. To get into this place, <coughs> you had to start, you had to pull your car up. Then there was this old road that is a 700 yard road. And you can't drive it because it's too beat up. And I knew I wanted to get my layout boat in there. So I had an old cart from Cabela's. And I strapped my kayak. It was a Cartson's Puddler kayak. So it was pretty light. About uh, 90, 100 pounds. About 80, 80, 90 pound kayak. Strapped it to this little um, cart. Had about 20 decoys. Izzy was with me my bag, my gun and portage it down this hill, 700 yards till I got to my first patch of water. And it's about a 70 yard elevation down, which makes the, the, the portage down the hill totally fine. But on the way back, it just killed you. I, this was 13 years ago. I'm so I'm 50 now. So I was 37. I was a lot, I was younger, better shape. Um, I, I don't think I would do this anymore. In fact, I don't do this anymore. Um, so 700 yards to the pool, put the boat on the pool, 800 yard paddle. Once you get across the pool, you now have a hundred yard portage or drag through the woods, dragging the boat, all your gear. <coughs> then you hit a, a little Creek. You have to portage across the Creek 
high banks and on low water time, this back channel is completely silt. So on the sides, if you hit the wrong mud, you could be up to your knee in mud. Cross the channel, back up into the woods again, another 100-yard drag through the woods, and then a 200-yard paddle or a drag. And once you get into this place, so this whole thing is kind of a figure eight with land in the middle, and you have two pools. One pool is nice and open. One pool has a lot of timber, a lot of trees with open holes. And, and I was focusing on um, the area with the timber and the open holes. So once you got into that pool, it was about knee deep at the time and open water, no real flooded vegetation, um, duckweed, a lot of duckweed in there. And I'm not sure why the ducks liked it so much. Maybe they were finding bugs in there. There wasn't a lot of food. And I think that's why the people didn't really hunt it all, all that much. So you did 200 yard paddle to get to the place. Now, when I, when I got there, this was a as physical as a portage in 700 yards, then 800 yard paddle, 100 yard portage, cross the creek, another 100 yard drag through the woods, 200 yard paddle to, to just get there. And when I got there, I was just completely soaked with sweat. This is the first time that I had ever done this portage in the dark to get to this place. And like I said, I already hunted a couple times. And the other two times that I had hunted it, there were some guys in there. Not a lot of guys, but a guy here, a guy there. And it wasn't a huge place, but, you know, with the timber and everything, you could feel like you were kind of, kind of by yourself. So once I got all the way in there, I realized at that time I was completely by myself. There was no one else in this marsh at this time. I'd made it through that through that exhausting, excruciating portage to get all the way in there. The spot I wanted to hunt, I was pretty sure hunt was the premier spot of the pool. And on the opener, we got beat into this spot, and we did shoot our limit. But the guys that were that were in that spot shot theirs way quicker. It just seemed like that was the the X of the pool. And I remember 2010. Um, I had gone through a divorce starting in 2006, 2007. At that time, I realized that I needed to change my, my, my life drastically. And I was, I was raised in a Christian home. My parents were followers of Jesus Christ and they had taught me to be that. And I had just fallen away. I'd fallen away and I'd gotten embedded in a friend group and a lifestyle that I was just struggling to get out of. But when um, the divorce happened, and I won't get into the details of that, but I did have biblical means for, for that divorce. But I was like, my life isn't working the way it is. I'd been kind of trying to get back to God. And that was my chance just to be like, God, here I am. I'm, I'm yours. I'm obviously make terrible decisions on my own. So please lead my life. And for um, three, four years in there where I was single, I was just repairing myself and becoming a better man, trying to get as close as I could with Jesus Christ. And I tell that story because when I got to this spot, a lot of timber with this nice open hole, I remember having my little layout boat in the middle of that hole as I was putting decoys out. Izzy would always stand on the front of it because this was only like a eight foot little 
the the peddler's a tiny little layout boat. Izzy would always stand on the front. It was a completely clear night, a no moon clear night. And as I was out there just floating in there, covered in sweat from the portage, I looked up and all my flashlights were out and I looked straight up into the sky. And at that moment, that's the closest I had ever felt to God. And and maybe the closest time I've ever felt to God. And I remember just raising both of my hands up in the air and just praising God in that moment. Because that that hard work that I went through to get down there and then being all by myself, knowing it was a five-mile boat ride for anyone to get to it. I mean, I felt like I talk about full immersion hunting and what that is. And that's what my dad and I's style of hunting, that's what we call a full immersion, to be immersed in wilderness, completely isolated and killing ducks. Killing ducks when you feel like you're the only person on the planet. That is the ultimate experience. And at that moment, I was filled with that lonely. Uh, Stephen Ranella calls it soaking up the lonely. And I just had this moment between me and God that is just indescribable. And so as sun started coming up, still no one, no one arose. No one showed up. I had this entire place to myself. And there was a little tree little bunch of trees and I had my layout boat. I don't, I didn't even uh, actually did lay out my layout boat. I, I laid under this little tree with a section of trees and had my decoys out. And as, as the sun came up, there really wasn't the kind of movement that I was hoping, but everything that I saw was finishing right in the decoys. And my notes from the hunt say, and so in the first couple of hours, I had shot a couple gadwalls, um, and I had this one mallard drake that came from south to north. And the wind on this hunt, so it was 40s. The wind was west-northwest at 20. So I was facing southwest, and the wind was kind of cross um, from my right kind of in front of me. And so these ducks would kind of circle this tree pattern and they would just float right in off my feet. And I had this one mallard that flew by me and he was a little bit out of range and he flew from the South to North kind of into the wind, but he didn't land. And I remember giving him a, a five quack. And the moment I hit the call, his wings just locked and he pulled a complete circle back behind me over my left shoulder floated right down into the decoys and I killed him about 10 yards off the decoys. At that point I had two gadwalls and a mallard drake. And that memory of, of how he reacted to the call. So anyway, it was about 10 o'clock at that time. So the, the, the movement wasn't just spectacular, but I'm laying in my layout boat. I've got this feeling of isolation. I'm as happy as I can be. I'm just like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to stay. I'm I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to lay here in the boat and, and enjoy this moment. And right about that time, right about 1030, it had been cloudy 40 in the forties. 
the sun came out. And when the sun came out, I did not see another duck. I've had this happen several times, actually, where it's cloudy and then the sun comes out and the movement shuts down for a while. And I don't know if there's a correlation between that, if that was the reason, but I just know that that's happened a couple of times. And so I sat there for about an hour. I was sitting on three ducks. It was two gads, Mallory Drake. And I just laid there for like an hour. And then at 1130, it was like someone flipped a switch. And all of a sudden there was good movement again. And then like the next half hour from like 1130 to 12, I had a little pack of widgeon come down in, shot a double, had another gadwall come in, killed the gadwall. And I ended up with my limit. I ended up with three gadwalls, two widgeon, one mallard drake. And you would think, well, you know, you shot a bunch of gadwalls. What was so special about that hunt? It was everything that I described. It was the epic moment under this, under the stars. It was being there with Izzy. It was that feeling of isolation. It was that meal I was going to have later on. It was everything about that hunt. It was having success in the place that I had found that wasn't even on the maps, that hardly anyone knew about, that I had to find all on my own that I had to trek in there on their own. The enjoyment, the, the satisfaction level of that hunt was absolutely off the charts, absolutely off the charts. Now the portage out <laughs> was a little bit more difficult when you got to that 700 yard road that was 70 foot in incline with all your gear wet. I wouldn't, I'm telling you at age 50, which is what I am right now. I can promise you I wouldn't be making that portage. I can promise you I wouldn't. It's just be too much. It's too much. Pushing that up that hill, too much. But what a day that was. So the second one, the second hunt I want to talk about, I refer to as the front. And this is the one I did actually video, but it took place in um, November 11th of 2013. Oh, I, I did mean to mention my shooting on that first hunt um, was six for eight which I wanted to give some of my numbers on. It was six for eight on that first time. Shot eight times, killed six. So on to the front. Um, I have not done this for a while, but my dad and I got in this habit of camping. Now, um, we only did it once every couple of years where I just wanted to, it goes back into that full immersion thing. There is something about, so typically it would work like this. You get there at about two or three, you go in, you set up camp, you get in about an hour, hour and a half, two hour hunt in the evening. You go back to your campsite, you make a fire, cook some hot dogs or whatever, hang out around the fire, listen to the owls, look at the stars, just be there. The idea is spending close to 24 hours just immersed in, in the nature. And so we did that on this hunt and we took my brother-in-law named Steve and we had to, th this place, a um, little different place. I'd been hunting this one a little bit more frequently um, than the other one. Um, Steve was coming along. I got there a little bit early and so I went in, set up the camp got everything ready and we would use little one man tents on, on 
these hunts. So little bivvies is what they are. And I bought three bivvies so that when I, when I do this, um, people that would come with me, I just have a little bivvy with them. It's so easy to carry. All you need is a, something to put your head on a sleeping bag, a bivvy. It's just a great way to portage things in where we had three, we had three, um, layout boats, two little puddlers and a pintail Karstens. Man, my throat is scratchy tonight. Um, anyway, so you could get all the gear in there. And so we all got in there and for the evening hunt, we got set up and right away, my brother-in-law killed a gadwall. And that was all we had for the evening. And so we went back to camp and, uh, had a great night. In fact, I got quite a bit of footage of us just hanging around the campfire. I need to go back and watch this again. I haven't watched this video in about three, four years. In fact, this is, it's listed. I'll put it on the podcast group. Um, North American waterfowler podcast group on Facebook, go and join over there. I'll, I'll put this hunt over there and you can go see it. And if you live in my area, you'll probably, be able to, you, you will be able to figure out where this hunt is. If you're familiar with my personal area, man, I'm having to drink a lot of water. Cause I'm using the scratch throat. I've been having this throat thing for like a week. So <clears throat> the next morning we went back out to the spot. We had built this really cool blind out of willows and I felt pretty brushed in, but these were really stale birds. And so there was a decent amount of movement. Uh, there was a decent amount of movement for this pool. Now this pool was ringed by trees about knee deep water. Uh, it's about 0.8 miles long, 400 yards wide. So pretty, pretty big pool, pretty big pool. And we didn't see another hunter on, on either that evening or the next morning. Like we didn't see anyone else, which added to the awesomeness of the whole thing. But, we were back in there and in the morning we didn't shoot anything. Actually, I think that we shot one and lost it, but there were, the movement was okay. It was enough birds to keep us around. And I just, I just didn't want to leave. I just didn't want to leave. And, and my, my brother-in-law was starting to feel kind of sick. Like 10 o'clock rolls around, 1030 rolls around, 11 rolls around. And he's feeling sicker and sicker. And I'm just like, man, I don't want to leave. I'm like, okay, listen, here's the deal. I will go back. So we still haven't even shot anything. We shot that one gadwall the night before, <clears throat> but I knew I'd been watching the weather and there was this front, this massive front coming in right around noon. And I wanted to stick around just to see what happens on this front. I had never hunted a midday front like this. I had no idea what would happen, but it's like, you know, when the North wind comes strong, you don't know, are the, are the ducks going to come on the front end of that? Are the ducks going to come in on the back end of the front? You really, you really just don't know. And so I really wanted to stick around and try to make it for that front. So I said, you guys stay here, stay in the blind. I'll go back to the camp. I'll get everything packed up so that when we're done hunting, we don't have to put away tents. We don't have to fold sleeping bags up. We can just get our stuff and get out of here. And I got back to the, I got back and the, these woods were just beautiful, just beautiful. They're the kind of woods that don't get a lot of undergrowth. So it's tall, tall trees, but not much undergrowth. So it's, it's a really magical feel and it's November. So the trees had lost, you know, a significant amount of leaves, but there was still plenty of leaves on the, on the trees. And when I, as I was packing things up, all of a sudden it went from about no wind and boom, this cold, not like frigid cold. 
And let me check. What was the temperature on this day? Let me check this real quick and see what the temperature was. Uh, man, I did not record the temperature on this day. It doesn't look like. Some days I wasn't very good about recording temperature. So anyway, <clears throat> that north front hit when I was back in there um, packing things up. And as soon as it hit, the woods went from quiet to the wind going through these cottonwoods. And if you've ever been around cottonwood trees, you know what I'm talking about. You know that sound. It is a magical sound. And the wind came through those cottonwoods and leaves were following everywhere through this forest with no underbrush. So it was easy walking and right around our campsite. And I just sat there letting that, it was sunny too, letting that wind just hit my face and feel that cold North wind, the leaves falling down, the sound of the wind coming through the trees. Incredible moment. Absolutely incredible moment. And I got a lot of that on video. And so about that time, um, I got everything packed up and my dad and Steve came back from the blind. And my dad's like, we got to go. Steve is feeling really, really sick. And I'm like, we actually had two cars because we had come a little differently. So I'm like, you guys, okay, you guys go ahead and get on out of here. I'm going to just see what happens. Cause we still, it's like, you know, it's like 1130, 12 o'clock by this point, And we haven't shot a single duck. But this cold front came and I want, I just want to see what happens. So they got out of there and I'm like, I, I need to maybe change where I'm sitting a little bit. So I moved out onto the pool a little bit more. And just after 12 o'clock, I'm not kidding. They no more got a half mile down the pool and took a left. And I looked up and there were ducks everywhere in the air, everywhere. They had, these ducks had ridden in this north wind like a surfer, like right on the front end of it. And all of a sudden it went from stale ducks that had been around for a couple of weeks to fresh ducks everywhere. Redheads, mallards, gadwalls. I think I may have even seen some canvasbacks, which we just don't hardly, I don't hardly see. And I was just laying in my boat with Izzy. And man, I went from zero ducks to six ducks like in 30 minutes. And I did not shoot very well. I was six for 15, lost one, but I ended up with three gadwalls, one head mallards and two redheads. So the, the, the bag wasn't the best again. I didn't even shoot a mallard drake, but it was experiencing that weather. And seeing all those hundreds, it was not thousands of birds, it was hundreds of birds, but seeing hundreds of birds roll down in on this north wind and then shooting them right in my decoys. I, I think I finished with a double on redheads, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. I doubled on redhead drakes to, to end it, which I don't shoot a lot of redhead drakes. And I love redhead drakes. I think they're fantastic. I think they're a fantastic bird. But from the moment that I felt that wind change in my face when I was in the campsite and felt that mother nature force and I was imagining, could there be ducks on this? And I had been anticipating this front all morning to laying there and see it happen and see a marsh go from 
sporadic movement to ducks everywhere. I've never had an experience like that before. I've just, I've never had an experience like that before. When I called my dad, by the time I had my limit, they were barely, because the portage out was a significant portage. It was a, a difficult one. It wasn't the easiest. And my brother-in-law was so sick. My dad like was having to drag him out and everything. And by the time I called him on the phone and told him I had my limit, they were just barely driving away. And my dad has always, always regretted it. But I talked about why we, why we hunt these mag- magnificent creatures. Cause I'm out there seeing that I'm out there seeing the weather change and seeing all of these magnificent birds rolling in on it and, and harvesting them is really insignificant to see it, but yet a big point, a big part of it at the same time. So what a day that was. Well, let's take another quick break and I will come back. I got one more hunt. I want to talk with you guys about, so hang right in there. I will be right back. Please don't wait for me. I lost my way again. I lost my job. I walked away from the life that I was leading with my friends. the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western a mule there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv brave anglers search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv all right, I've got one more hunt for you that I want to talk about that rolls around in my head often. I don't have a video from this. This is the year before I started freelance duck hunting. All these hunts weirdly come from mid-November. Um, gosh, I had another one I just thought about from 2015 that was mid-November too with Danny Boy that just lives in my head in infamy. But this one, it's the foggy day hunt. And my dad and I were on the hunt together. We got up at 2 a.m. This is a, a different pool. Now, this pool, <clears throat> kind of a big round pool, and it normally is about calf to just under knee deep, and it's it's wide open. And this one does not have near as many, not not near as much forest around it. The other the other two pools have a lot of have forest all the way around, but this one doesn't. This is way more open. Feels a little bit more like a a prairie marsh. Um, and typically loaded with smart reed, smart weed, millet. Uh, this is a food pool that the ducks just love and the other hunters love it too. 
this one I had been hunting. Everyone knew about this pool. Um, I still hunt it, but not, not that much. It's a he heavily traveled pool, but we still love it. It's still a great pool. I should probably hunt it a little more, quite honestly. Um, <coughs> so right around Thanksgiving, we had a cold front come in and that time of year, it is very, very difficult to be able to figure out whether a marsh is froze or not i mean it can even it, it's all about water temperature but that's not the only variable um and so mid-november when you're getting these first freezes down to 20 degrees i don't remember how cold it got that night but when you're getting these first freezes there's times you'll go out to a marsh and there's no ice like well i thought there was going to be marsh or i thought there was going to be ice then there's times that you will go out to a marsh and you're like, Oh my gosh, I didn't think it was going to be frozen. I thought the water was probably too warm and it's just completely frozen. And this was one of those days. I did not think that this pool is going to be flooded, um, frozen like it was. We got up, we got up at two. I don't know why we got up so early. I guess, I guess we just wanted to beat everyone in there. We portaged into this spot <clears throat> It's a significant walk in here, and we drug our layout boats. Um, we portaged them on carts and got in there. When we got there, the entire the entire pool was iced enough that you could walk on the ice. And the year before, which I could have talked about this hunt, we had gone in there on an ice hunt and found this hole in this marsh that just seemed like a natural hole where the wind swept through. Swept through. And so I'm like, okay, let's go to that area and just see the thickness of the ice. See if, if maybe I can, can, can break a hole. And it was deep, deep fog cover. And we walked out there and I was able to break through a little, a little chunk. And I mean, we had invested a lot and there was no one else around. <clears throat> And so I'm like, I think I can break a hole here. I have no idea what's going to happen, but I think that I can break a hole. And so I spent the next literally two hours straight breaking this hole. And, and it was just such, I don't remember exactly what made it so hard about breaking this hole, whether the ice was so thick that I was having to sit down on it or whether I was having to clear. I know I was having to really work on clearing it out, but I finally got this ice hole kind of pretty much ready to go and I was ready for shooting time. But I mean, I was, even though it was freezing, I was pouring with sweat and it's so with me. It doesn't matter what the temperature is. Literally I can be out in zero degrees. And if I start working, I'm going to sweat. Thank you, dad. And so I just busted my butt to make this ice hole, having no idea what was going to happen. So I got the ice hole made and it wasn't bad. I'd say it was probably like a 20 by 20 which I would, you know, I really would like a 50 by 50, but it took me two hours to make it. It took me two hours to make it. So I'm like, that's a good, the best I could do. And so we, we pulled our layout boats over and there was a bunch of smart weed mixed with cockleburs that was above the ice. And we pulled it right in there. Shooting time came. And with that, I mean, the fog was, well, you know, a morning where the fog is just like, there's not a light fog. It's like a foggy fog. You can't see nothing. 
And as, as the hunt started, you could hear wings, but you just couldn't see anything. And some things would come down in, float down in, but it's just so dark. You just, you just couldn't, you couldn't do anything with it. So we really couldn't even start pulling the trigger and for about a half an hour. But once you could see birds started being able to figure out where we were a little bit better. And we had just some amazing passes. You would be laying there in the boat. You'd hear the wings. You'd hear the quackens quacking. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they would just descend out of the fog and the visuals I can still remember to where you hearing the wings, hearing the quacks, knowing that they're falling in towards you. And then all of a sudden they just appear out of the fog. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible visuals. The shooting was a little bit tougher. I went uh, six for 11 on this hunt, which still isn't bad. So better than 50%, but the visuals like I said, of these birds coming out of the fog was unbelievable. I ended up with three mallard drakes, a hen, one gadwall, one green wing teal. So one, two, three, four, yeah, four. So four mallards, one of them being a hen, a green wing teal, and a gadwall. And I had my limit. Uh, my dad was struggling on his shooting a little bit because it was not easy to shoot, but I had my limit right about the time that the sun burned the fog off. And when that happened, when the fog dissipated, then the show was really on. I mean, all of a sudden, I don't know if the birds were around this much and I wasn't hearing them see them because the fog, but once that fog, which that's my, been my experience on foggy days, is that I've shot them in the fog like that. But if you have a foggy day, when that fog burns off, man, be ready because the action picks up and there were mallards everywhere everywhere and the wind picked up they became a little bit harder to decoy for some reason i don't know whether they were seeing us or whatever but my dad did end up it did end up shooting his limit um and that hunt was just another adventure An another example of scratching that itch of being out and being adventurous Moving lots of gear through the dark in the fog, finding it to be full of ice, spending two hours breaking an ice hole, hearing the sounds of the quacks in the fog, seeing feet down, wings set when you first see them just coming down out of the fog, then the fog dissipating and mallards everywhere. That whole sequence and having the whole pool to ourselves, having the isolation feeling on top of that. These three hunts are why we hunt these magnificent creatures and the whole time loving them and respecting them, respecting every kill. <coughs> respecting every moment, realizing the significance of wildlife and our part in it and being able to take a small sampling of the of the number of waterfowl that exist that we can put on our plate, not having someone else kill it for us and put it in a store, but taking it ourselves. All of the reasons that I've described in these three hunts 
are why we kill these magnificent creatures. And I know if you're listening to this, you too are a North American waterfowler and you get it. You understand. And people that don't do it and don't have that drive, that hunter drive, the drive, the adventure seeking, the nature loving to see it, to experience it. They just, they don't get it, I guess. But this is why we kill these magnificent creatures. My name is Elliot and you have listened to another episode of the North American waterfowler podcast. If you like what I'm doing, if you could do me a great favor and hit that five-star rating, write a little review, it would mean a lot to me. It would help spread what I'm trying to do around a little bit more until next time. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this content.